Hi, this is Zoe Durand. Uh, this is the Inside Family Law podcast, and I'm here, very lucky to be here, with Rebecca Chapman, who works at International Social Services Australia. Thanks for joining me, Rebecca. You're welcome. So, could you just tell me a bit about your role and what you do at International Social Services Australia? My role is the managing lawyer of the legal service and we specialise in international parental child abduction law and more specifically the 1980 Hague Convention. Okay, and could you tell me a bit about um, like the, the background of International Social Services Australia, what is it exactly, is it a government body, is it an NGO or, or, or what's, the, what's the setup with it? We're an NGO, a not-for-profit organisation. Um, it's primarily a social work organisation. Um, it started off as a social work organisation decades ago. Um, and it's, it's a branch office of a larger global organisation that uh, I suppose has a focus on um, child rights and particularly with um, cross-border issues. Um, so most of the work we do is social work related and then we also have the legal service specialising in IPCA. Okay. Um, so you mentioned IPCA, so is that, what is that, is that, is that the work under the Hague Convention that you do? Yes, that's right. Um, IPCA, I, I call it IPCA, but it's International Parental Child Abduction, which mm -hmm. can be a bit of a mouthful, so we refer to it as IPCA. Um, and that's looking at when uh, parents, you know, having a dispute over family law, when one parent removes their child from Australia without the other's permission, or perhaps leaves Australia with permission but doesn't come back. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just to, look, I'm diving into it, but I'm just really interested in this. I'll, I'll be honest, hand on heart, I have never actually had much experience in this area, like, although I've been a family lawyer for a long time. Um, what is the, pro like, what is the process? So say mum or dad, someone approaches you and says, help, my child's gone to X country, it's a, uh, is a hate convention country overseas. Mm. What's, can you just talk me through the actual, like, nitty gritty of what happens then? Yeah, the process. Yeah, the process. Um, so the first step is obviously to figure out if it's a Hague country or a non-Hague country. Sure. Um, if it is a Hague Convention country, then we can help that parent to prepare a return application under the 1980 Hague Convention. Um, the, the process is, in short, um, is essentially the preparation of um, an application um, and a supporting affidavit of fact setting out how it is that the um, parent's case meets the criteria of the Hague Convention, mm -hmm. their case for return. Um, having prepared the evidence, it then goes through an administrative process. So every country that's a signatory to the Hague Convention has a central authority that will review the application, make a decision about whether or not it meets the criteria, um, and if uh, the case successfully passes through both central authorities, um, then it will, the case will be filed in court in the overseas country where the child is, where the matter will be heard before a judge in that jurisdiction, um, but will be considered pursuant to the 1988 Convention. Um, okay. That process can look slightly different depending mm. on the country and the system, um, but generally speaking, um, that's, how it, that's how it progresses overseas. So do you work with the central authorities overseas, or how does it all connect up a little bit? Yeah, we connect to the Australian Central Authority. Sure, okay. So okay. we prepare all the material for mm -hmm. the client, and that's the material that will go before the judge in the overseas mm -hmm. court. 
Um, we then liaise with the Australian Central Authority around submission to them. Mm -hmm. um, generally speaking, once the Australian Central Authority has accepted a matter, our involvement ends mm -hmm. and the client, usually in some for, form or another, engages a lawyer in the overseas country okay. um, or in some overseas countries, the Central Authorities themselves are parties oh, to the proceedings. Okay. okay. So our our role finishes at the point in time where the Australian Central Authority um, accepts mm -hmm. it. Um, in some circumstances, we can also help clients prepare affidavits in reply. Um, and usually mm -hmm. that's in New Zealand matters. Okay. And just curious, what's the time frame or does it depend on the, well, I guess it depends on what's happening in the other country, you know, overseas. What yeah. kind of time frames will it be anything? It can be, it really varies. So yeah. probably the fastest countries we deal with and the and the most common countries that we deal with are New Zealand and the UK. Mm -hmm. They're quite fast, really, as far as court proceedings go. Mm. Um, like what kind of range? Like, I'd say three or four months that's, that's on average, fast, yeah. which is pretty fast when you think it's a family, you know, it's a matter involving family law issues anyway. Um, so, yeah, New Zealand and the UK, about three or four months. Um, and then from there, it really, it, it can, you know, really vary. Um, some countries can take closer to a year. Um, a year without seeing a child. Yeah, it can be a long time. I had one to Japan recently, and I think it was about eight months for a decision to be made. Okay. And is that, this is where a lot of confusion, I think, arises. So the thing, the issue is that once you know there's been a determination overseas to return the child it's not to return the child is it necessarily indefinitely it's to return them to have a decision then made about residency isn't that correct yeah so the Hague convention is about it's about forum where is the where is the appropriate place for decisions about the child to be made so it doesn't delve into best interests of the child in the way that a family law proceeding does it has quite a narrow set of issues that it considers and the point of it is to figure out where is the appropriate place for decisions about that child to be made and if it is in the country from which they've been taken then the, the purpose of it is for that child to be returned to that country where the parents can participate in family law proceedings basically and presumably maybe that parent who had removed the child would, would, would make you know would seek to have orders that they be able to relocate exactly so they may, the child may still possibly end up ultimately living overseas, but at least they're returned to have that question They're determined. returned to have the question determined in the most appropriate place for yeah. that decision to be made. Yeah, no, that's an important distinction to make. To make. That's yeah. interesting. Um, and how, I guess, how, how do people sort of find you? I have to admit, like, I, I wasn't that across, you know, all your services until recently when we mm. touch. Does it, is it, um, do they often, when they've got a problem, like, I can imagine it would be so overwhelming you know your child is taken to another country um people they might go and see a private lawyer or some other legal service like do people sort of find you through all different ways and or yeah seen another lawyer beforehand or how does that all work all different ways it can be challenging because we're we're a small not-for-profit so it can sure. be challenging to um, get your details out there but um we're lucky in that because we um uh, liaise closely with the Australian Central Authority yeah. if a parent whose child has been taken finds themselves contacting um, the, the ACA mm -hmm. um, they will refer people directly back to us mm -hmm. um, w 
usually people will find us um, through the internet, but we also do get referrals from um, other sources, so Family Relationships Australia or the courts, yeah. um, Legal Aid. Um, we do, our, our service is free, it's to the clients, it's funded by the Commonwealth Attorney General's Department. Sure. So um, people who do know that we specialise in this area um, will refer people to us where clients can have that sort of free service by someone who's specialising in the convention. So because this is what you do every day, this yes. is your work, like this is what you do day in, day out. Yes. Um, do you ever come across matters where the, um, the client has previously seen, say, a private lawyer or who's, who's, done the, who's tried to do the process or has done the process? Yeah, we do. We, I mean, we, our service do help, um, we probably do prepare most of Australia's outgoing applications, but we do sometimes have matters referred to us um, by the Australian Central Authority where um, a private lawyer has, perhaps not knowing about our services, has prepared an application and submitted it on behalf of the client um, and it's then referred back to our service to do some additional work on the material. Um, 1980 Hague um, Convention matters are different to family law matters. Mm. Um, it's looking at a much narrower set of issues um, and and you're going into those specifics in great detail. Um, and I think sometimes um, if you're not very familiar with the ins and outs of the 1980 Hague Convention, um, those details are easy to miss. Um, uh, and so, yeah, sometimes we do, we do have to do some work on matters that were initially prepared by private lawyers. It's good for people to know that they can um, refer clients to us when they have a 1988 convention issue and that we can help the client at no cost and mm -hmm. if there are any family law proceedings in the future um, you know they the parent will need to go back to a, a domestic family lawyer um, but we can help in, in the interim. So I suppose would your message to um uh, a private lawyers be that if they come across a client who needs this assistance they probably really it sounds like they should refer them to you because that's what you do every day ideally yes I think that's what would be in the client's interests um, and you know if anyone has you know we, we have a national uh, advice line that anyone can call clients um, or professionals we do have professionals calling us including legal professionals what's the number for that Sorry, I've got you on the spot. <laughs> we'll look it up later and I'll yeah. add it to the podcast. I'll add a link to the bottom of the podcast. Uh, that's okay? great. Yeah, I don't know it off the top of my head. Yeah, but it's, Sorry, it's not a memory test. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but absolutely they can call and, you know, we can talk to them about whether or not it is a matter that is a Hague Convention, um, you know, issue um, and talk to them about how we might be able to help the client. Okay. I do have a question about what does someone do if their child has been abducted to somewhere that is not signatory to the hate convention is there anything you can do to help or anything anyone can do to help or that's it we can still give them <laughs> legal advice about their options yeah. absolutely um if it's egypt or lebanon where there are bilateral arrangements in place we can also help people in that situation by preparing an application pursuant to the bilateral arrangements um, but yeah. if it's just a non-hate convention country there's no bilateral agreement in place um, really that person's option is to pursue family law proceedings in the overseas country 
um, there is a financial assistance scheme available that's provided by the Commonwealth Attorney General's Department. So we can provide people with information about that scheme, um, suggestions for how they might find lawyers in the overseas jurisdictions. Okay, so um, this, you can still help them with starting that process that they'll then have to embark on by themselves. Exactly. Yeah. And we also have an international mediation service. So um, it might be that, you know, certainly in any Hague, in any parental child abduction matter, um, mediation might be appropriate, but particularly so in a non-Hague country abduction where mm. your options are more limited. Mm. Um, you know, in, in those mm. cases we would, you know, particularly be referring people to a mediation service to consider whether or not that's going to be an option for them. Okay. Um, and how does that work? See, you know, I'm a mediator myself, but I, I normally do just mediators, mediations where the parties are, you know, they may not be in the same room, that might be a shuttle mediation. Mm. It, when it's international, is this done through Skype? Is it done through by telephone? What's how's, Do you know how it's done? Like, actually it depends just... on, I think, um, the capacity of the parents or caregivers involved. So we can do it over the phone, it can be done over Skype, it can be done using other, you know, electronic means, whatever suits the circumstances. Mm -hmm. So ordinarily the, the mediation team specialise in mediations where parents are in different countries. So you, mm. should, you will have one in Australia, one somewhere else, um, and they use a two mediator model. So there will be two mediators okay. present in every mediation. And why is that? I don't mean that in a, you know, why is that? But just I'm curious, like, what's the benefit for that? Like, does it help? Or? My understanding is that there has been some research done um, about that particular model in these mm. sorts of cases um, and, and the benefit that it can have um, to have, I suppose, two mediators having input into the dispute, which can sometimes be, I mean, all parenting disputes are difficult because, you know, by nature it's a parenting dispute, it's difficult, but when you have those cross-border issues involved, it can be more complex. Mm. People can be sort of more emotionally heightened because um, there's there's more challenges involved in maintaining that meaningful relationship when mm. you have, um, mm. you know, a, a different countries involved. So um, I, I think um, the, my understanding of it is having the the two mediators having input into those quite complex issues seems to work really well um, to help the clients sort of work through those, those complexities. It's really interesting. That mm. is really, really interesting. I'll have to look into that um, and the research around that. That is, that's really interesting. Perhaps it's just um, having two different, you know, two people who may be saying the same thing might kind of convince them more or yeah. something. I don't know. It's yeah. interesting though. Um, so... What about, are there any other services that International Social Services Australia, I know you um, focus on matters under the Hague Convention, but what else does, what are the other services provided? Our International Parental Child Abduction Service has two services, so mm -hmm. we're a multidisciplinary team. We have the legal service, so we're specialising in actually preparing the documents for mm -hmm. Hague Convention applications. We also have a social work support service that can provide emotional and practical support to people who are impacted by IPCA. Mm. So, and, and that service is probably available to a broader range of people. So uh, our casework in the legal service is really focused on left behind parents, mm. whereas the social work support can be provided more broadly to 
um, anyone really impacted by IPCA. So it might be that someone has brought their child to Australia or it might be um, a relative, um, although it, it's most commonly um, providing additional sort of emotional and practical mm -hmm. support to the left behind parents. Mm -hmm. um, and then our other services um, sort of have various specialisations, but it's all to do with children and cross-border issues. So um, we have a social work service that prepare inter-country um, kinship assessment reports. So if children are taken into care in um, other countries and they're looking at perhaps placing them with a relative in Australia, do kinship care assessments, so whether or not it might be an appropriate placement for that child in out-of-home care. Mm. Um, we also have some family tracing services um, and the mediation service. There, there are primary services that we offer. Okay. Um, could you just, I mean, very briefly, obviously, you know, we don't have time to go into it for, for hours, but, mm. um, and I'm sure you could, you could talk on it for hours, <laughs> but, um, what are the, the considerations that your material would cover, um, when you're making that application to the central authority, like, like under the Hague Convention, like what are the factors, the relevant factors? It's, we, I mean, the, to establish a case, mm. um, I mean, people might frame this in different ways, but you, the child has to be under 16. Mm -hmm. um, the, the parent who's making the application needs to have a right of custody to the child, which is a bit more complex than um, just being their parent. Or um, It looks at issues sort of more broadly than that. Um, but, you know, usually it does come down to just whether they're or not you can establish they're a parent. Um, and is the child habitually resident in Australia, which again is a complex legal term. It doesn't have a definition, but a lot goes into that parental intention, connection to country. Um, so that can be quite a complex issue in some matters, whether or not mm. the child is habitually resident in Australia or not. Um, Do you mean if they travelled a lot, if it was un like unclear where they were primarily living? Yeah, kind of yeah. Um, there might be some dispute around whether or not there was a shared parental intention about where the family should be living. Mm -hmm. It could be that they haven't been in one place for a very long time, um, and so you have arguments around connection to country. It really is something that varies from case to case. Mm. Um, if you can establish that you know, you meet the criteria for a return. The Hague Convention is sort of a set up in that it says if you can establish that criteria, the child should be returned forthwith to their place of habitual residence unless, you know, certain exceptions apply. Um, and then there are various exceptions that um, the taking parent can argue to that requirement mm. to return. And when we prepared material, we would usually address some of those exceptions that it, it seems clear would be raised. So, mm. Like preemptively they might raise Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so, so things like child's yeah. objections, that you know, the child objects to return and they're mm. of an age and maturity where their objection should be considered. Mm -hmm. um, that's often raised consent or subsequent acquiescence that's a big one um, so that's perhaps you might perhaps the taking parent might say well actually they gave me permission to move or they didn't give me permission but I've you know now been here for six months and they haven't done anything <laughs> about it so um, they've sat on their hands basically yeah, yeah so you might have arguments around whether or not they've subsequently acquiesced to the children 
um, remaining overseas permanently. I mean, is it a certain, like, I know there's no rule, like, 2 plus 2 is 4, but 6 months, is that, would that, that would be a problem? There's no rule actually? in that sense. It becomes a problem if your application is filed more than 12 months since mm. the date of wrongful removal or retention. At that point, the taking parent can say, well, the child has now become settled in their new environment, and that <laughs> is almost that's almost impossible to overcome. I mean, it has been done, but it's um, you really need to have it filed in the overseas country before that 12 months has passed. Mm. But within that, it doesn't matter so much. The later you file, potentially the stronger an argument for subsequent acquiescence, but So again, is the message to do it sooner rather than later? Sooner rather than later. So if, if, it, if you happen to be a parent, I guess, listening to this, and you're concerned what that your child has been abducted overseas. Yeah, move on it quickly. Move on it quickly. You don't want to spend a lot of time negotiating um, mm. for fear of, you know, potentially giving even by accident unintended consequence of giving some impression that you're going to be okay with them staying there. You need to avoid that. Mm. Um, and then the the other one that's very commonly raised is that returning the children to their place of habitual residence would put them at grave risk of physical or psychological harm or otherwise place them in an intolerable situation. Mm. That's very that commonly mean? raised. That's interesting. Um, what could that mean in practicality? In practice, usually that's related to the taking parent raising concerns around their financial circumstances okay. post-separation in the country of habitual residence. So um, in in the work that we do commonly, that might be a taking mother saying, I, I'm separated, um, I'm going to be the primary caregiver of the child, I want to, it's, it's very difficult for me to do that in Australia where I don't have financial support or I don't have my family to help me or I can't access government benefits, um, which is particularly the case for um, New Zealanders living in Australia. Mm. Um, and so arguments around financial stability, also family violence, um, is uh, sort of big in terms of how it relates to that defence. So um, a lot of people who remove their children from Australia um, wrongfully will say that they have been the victim of family violence mm. and that that makes their position in Australia very difficult mm. and that's one of their um, contributing factors to why, in fact, they have left the country. Um, and they will... There, there are often arguments that because of that family violence to the mother or father, um, most commonly the mother, um, that returning the child places them at grave risk of harm. Um, and I suppose the argument goes that the, um, you know, the, um, the harm might be, under the Hague Convention, the grave risk has to be to the child. Um, but what a taking parent would say is that um, the well-being of the child is so um, connected to the well-being of the primary caregiver that it it is in fact a harm to the child. And it's sort of like, well, if the child has witnessed violence to the you know uh, to the primary caregiver or something, for mm. example, it's sort of rare that that could be cleanly kind of separated off that just the primary caregiver has been subjected to violence and the child is not somehow affected at all by yeah. that. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. I think as um, as we learn more about the impact of family violence on families, it becomes clearer that, um, you know, violence might not be directed at children, but they're still impacted by it. Mm. They might witness it. Um, or, you know, it could be that, you know, they, they do rely on the well-being of their primary caregiver. 
Um, so those issues are sort of dealt with when you look at that exception to the requirement to okay. return. Okay. Um, so that, thank you for that. That was a really good run through of all of those issues. Um, are there any, I guess, current, I mean, something that came to my mind that you and I talked about previously um, is, I guess, the issue of, to return to that family violence issue. Um, some It has been argued, I think you were saying in the media, uh, that the Hague Convention doesn't adequately deal with family violence. Maybe not so much in the Australian media, but in the overseas media. Is that correct, Rebecca? Yeah, it's quite topical at the moment. There's, particularly in New Zealand, um, there's a lot of um, material being published around um, the suggestion that the Hague Convention doesn't adequately deal with um, family violence. Um, there, I mean, it, I think it's true to say that when the Hague Convention was drafted, the idea was that most taking parents were um, parents unhappy with um, their family law situation and were essentially removing a child from their primary caregiver. Um, when in fact, what we see is that most parental child abductions um, are actually by the primary caregiver. Um, and usually in situations where they're trying to um, relocate back to their home country where they have you know, more Support, supports available yeah, for financial them. Financial family. Exactly. So I suppose arguably um, there has been a change in how we look at those issues over time. Well, not arguably, there has been a change in how we look at those issues over time. Whether or not the Hague Convention... Um, doesn't adequately deal with those issues. I think it's a really complex issue. I, mm. I, I couldn't... Come on, now you colours to the mask. What do you think? What do you really think? <laughs> I don't... I, I see both sides of the argument. Okay. I do Just see... because you're a lawyer. That's yeah. why you see both sides. <laughs> I think that, it, you know, it could come down to, you know, women have a right to live free from violence, um, but children also have a right to have a meaningful relationship with both of their parents and depending on the circumstances that can be easier to facilitate when parents are in the same country sure um, and in taking the child out of Australia in an unlawful manner one parent is unilaterally making a decision that will have long-term consequences for that child um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of complexity around it. I don't think it's as simple as saying a parent has experienced family violence and, and therefore that, that should somehow mean that they can take their child, yeah. they can make these decisions on their own. I don't mm. think it's as simple as that. Mm. And I do think that the Hague Convention does have the capacity to take into account family well, violence. In the exception we're in, raising. Exactly. So it's not like it... it entirely ignores it although the bar with grave risk is very high it is very difficult okay. to establish that it's unusual for that to be a successfully argued exception it is it is a high bar but you know the it's not to say that family violence and those issues won't be explored at all or that they're being entirely ignored the purpose of the Hague Convention is for those decisions and those discussions to happen in the most appropriate place. Forum, yeah, it's about forum, isn't yeah, it? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Now that is, is interesting. Um, and what about 
like, is it actually, and this is my ignorance, is it a criminal offence currently in Australia to remove a child? Not, not automatically. There are provisions in the Family Law Act um, that can that um, make it an offence if it's done in breach of court orders or if there are proceedings on foot. Um, and there is a new act that's coming into force this month, actually, the Civil and Justice Amendment Act, although it's it's something to that effect. Um, <laughs> something like that. Which, same, same, but different. Yeah, which extends the provisions um, to include wrongful retentions mm-hmm. as well as wrongful removals. Um, but, you know, prosecution according to those offences mm. is pretty unusual. If it's if there are no court orders in place, although it's unlawful, you you do require the other person the other parent's permission to relocate, um, it's not a criminal offence, no. Um, and mm. there is a lot of there's a lot there is debate about whether or not it should be. In some countries it is. Which a countries criminal for offence. America it's a it's criminal offence. Um, it's the first country that comes to mind. Um, but whether or not it should be, I mean... What are your thoughts on that? In, I am, I'm inclined to say I don't think criminalisation is a, is a sensible approach. Um, I think it does have a deterrent effect, which it, obviously you'd like to deter people from this course of action if you can. Having said that, I think what it ignores or, or that I would be concerned about is the welfare of the child. I think it's not... A positive situation to find that if the child is ordered to be returned and the parent coming back with them is going to come back to face criminal charges. Mm. Um, how is that going to really help that family? How has that helped that family move forward? Has it helped mm. them overcome what's already happened? What further impact might that have on the child who's already experienced something that will be quite traumatic for them mm. um, or probably will be quite traumatic for them huge disruptions yeah Um, and I think if you then add the prospect of criminal charges on top of that I I don't see that having on balance a positive impact on the family and the child and I think too also with criminal charges that can also play into the grave risk exception as well in some countries you see um, you know if you're going to go back and face criminal charges um, that might amount to a grave risk under the Hague Convention potentially. That's certainly what you would argue if you were taking parent. Mm. Um, and um, I, I don't know, I think that's something too that people need to, th- to think about mm. when they think about criminalisation. Yeah, no, that, that's a really thoughtful... Thank you, that's a really thoughtful kind of exploration of all of that. Mm. I guess just stepping back, I mean, when I think about you know, your service, I'm sort of thinking, oh, you know about the, the parent who's been left behind. So, the, you know, the parent who's here and the child's been taken overseas. But mm. I guess, what would you say as well, like I was thinking about from the other side, to someone, because I'm always like thinking it's better to kind of deal with things before they blow up into a huge situation. There would be people potentially listening to this who are thinking about they want to relocate with their child mm. overseas, as you've said. They don't may not have the financial supports here, the family supports. There may be other reasons why they wish to relocate. What should they be doing? What's the right process for them to be doing that? They can. People in that position can contact our advice line and mm. we can give them advice specific to their particular circumstances. Mm. But, I mean, generally speaking, mm. you need the other parent's permission. So <laughs> if you don't have it, you need to 
try and get it. And again, someone in that position, it might be an appropriate referral um, to a mediation service to try and have those discussions. Mm. Um, if they can't um, reach an agreement, then the correct process in Australia is to seek a relocation order through yeah. family court proceedings. And I... You know, I appreciate that's easier said than done. I was about to raise that. And I was, what I was going to say is, look, not that I'm at all justifying like wrongful removal of a child, but do you think that it does... I mean, everything's interconnected. Like, if the court queues weren't so long, mm-hmm. would that, you know, perhaps reduce the rate of people wrongfully taking their children overseas? Because maybe they think, oh, yeah, in theory... I'm not saying that I you know, condone this at all, but they could. the thought process mm. in reality could be, yes, I could do that. I could make that application in court to seek to relocate with little so-and-so overseas, but that's going to take X amount of years. You know, it's it, just, it, just, years it just feels too money. far in the future. I'll just yeah. do it and do the, I'll do the naughty thing and just do it and take them. Yeah. You know, do you think perhaps if the court queues were less lengthy, that that might... It might, you know, it all interplays. Do you it know what does. I, mean? I think it might reduce it. I, I wonder how, whether or not it would be a substantial reduction. Yeah, I doubt not. that actually, but I do think it would have. I do think it would have an impact. I think you would. It might feel overwhelming to parents who just think, who who are in that situation where they don't have the financial resources or family support, mm. and then on top of that, they're then being asked to do you know to far you know to being the court process for x amount of years mm-hmm. that might all just feel too overwhelming and then they kind of crack and just take the child overseas. exactly not that that's the right thing to do no. but i just say you know i can see how that could play, play out particularly when you look at you know the the emotional cost of of family court proceedings the financial cost you know where you have a mm-hmm. lot of people who can't afford lawyers but also aren't eligible for legal aid but i think there's so many people that fall between those cracks mm. that's actually something i'm really interested in that i raised in the original inside family law book i was speaking to this barrister and saying like you know you've got people who are eligible for legal aid and then you've got people that make like a certain amount of money where they can't really properly pay for a lawyer to run their matter like what do they do they just re- represent themselves it's yeah. pretty daunting and then english might be your second language and then da, 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 da. and a relocation application is a difficult application to make and to make successfully Mm. Um, so particularly if you don't have legal support to do that, it's certainly challenging. So I think if you had improvements in the family law system, you mm. might see a reduction um, in abductions. Yeah. I mean, is do you think it could be made more accessible, like, like for people that are trying to run relocation applications who can't really afford solicitors or they may not be eligible for legal aid? Because often they are people where English is a second language and so that I think then the legal system would be even more daunting. Mm. They're just my thoughts. No, I think you're right. But I think it all plays into the issues that, you know, are big at the moment, which is how do you improve the family law system? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've just had that report, which I have to admit, I'm not completely across. I've only read the cheat sheet. Yeah. Um, So, look, I wanted to return as well. I saw that you used to do some work with intercountry adoptees. Is that right as well? Helping link them with their try and find their families we did have an intercountry yeah. adoption tracing service and yes. what happened to that service um it was funded um we ha- that was funded through government funding but unfortunately the government funding was withdrawn um at the end of the contract and so that service is no longer offered mm-hmm. um by iss australia which was a shame it's um it, it's i think important for people to know their identity um so it's you know, it was a big loss. Mm. And I'm sure that you would have seen people whose lives were really, you know, impacted in a positive way through that service or a big way, at least, through that service. Absolutely. 
um, who now you know probably don't know where to kind of go to well it leaves them essentially having to do that on their own own, we have other ISS Australia offer other tracing services Mm -hmm. um, um, but not not in relation to inter-country adoption specifically so and to my knowledge there isn't another service out there offering that um, sort of specialized help with um, Mm -hmm. family tracing because you know it, it does involve it does require some Huge coordination of yeah, organisations overseas exactly. and, and connections in other countries, um, which is what we had and we're in the course of, um, you know, improving and establishing connections in different countries, particularly countries, you know, that commonly have inter-country adoptions with Australia, particularly in the past. Um, so it was a shame to lose that service. Is there any hope for it to be revived if any... Um philanthropic or if anyone's listening out there who would like to help with funding is that possible at all or it's gone for good it's I would say I would hope that the government would consider refunding it it was a valuable service Mm. um, and it it deserves funding in my mind and if we were able to have to find locate funding for that service we would absolutely um, look at reinstating it it's just the funding is in the what was the funding sector. like how much was the funding that you would need that you were needing to run that service i don't know the specific figures yeah. okay okay yeah no look that's just of interest to me i won't um go on about it too much but i have talked about this previously before publicly like i'm adopted from taiwan mm. so i was adopted um back in the early 80s so i was very interested to read that you do have that service on your website well you did have that service on your website um is funding an issue for ISSA generally, or it's it's everything else is being funded at present? Like, is it something you want to? Most talk of about? our services are funded um, by various by government bodies. We also have um, philanthropic donations to our organisation, but it's the not-for-profit sector. Mm-hmm. Funding is always an issue. Funding is always <laughs> an issue. What can people do who are listing? You know, who might be, you know, there might be a big law firm, or there could be some other organisation. Could can they make donations to you? How do they make donations? Absolutely. Um, our, all our methods for making donations are available on our website, which is www.iss.org.au. Um, and if anyone wanted to discuss um, anything more specific than simply a donation, they would just need to contact us and ask to speak to our business development manager or our executive director. And look, one thing I'm interested in is, has there been, because I think that more and more it's obviously we're becoming a global world and, you know, I'm, I'm married to a French man, you know, I was born in Taiwan, everything's everywhere and and I see uh, when I was in family law, like increasingly clients that have, they've got some property in Australia, property overseas, their kids have like half gone to school here and half done the French school in mm-hmm. overseas and, it you know, we're moving to such a global world. Do you think that there'll be an increase in the need for your work for the work that International Social Services Australia provides, have you seen an increase in the need for the the work that you're doing as people become more global or is it not really increasing that much? I'm I'm just curious. No, it does increase. Mm. It increases. um, There's some fluctuation, but it does does increase. The general trend is up. Absolutely. And I think um, probably not only will it increase, but um, the issues involved in the particular cases, even in the last five years, 
I'm of the view that the cases have become more complex. Yeah, I was going to ask you, is there a change just anecdotally in the, in, in the trends of how matters are going, how they run or yeah. the issues that are arising? Yeah, I think, I think they become, they're becoming more complex and usually around, um, around the frequency of international movement. So you sometimes, I think increasingly there are issues around the idea of habitual residence. I think so too. Yeah, yeah and from particularly where children have lived in lots of different places yes. for certain periods of time. And they've done school here, but then school overseas. And yeah. where, where are they? Where are they habitually they're resident? They're nomadic, not yeah. modern nomads. <laughs> so I think more commonly that's becoming an issue. And I also think because we can travel so easily now... Um, actually what can become an issue is that one parent might travel with the consent of the other for a fairly significant period of time and then you might have issues that come up with delay so the child might be in the other overseas country with consent for say nine months yes and at the end of that time the taking parent might say oh just a bit longer just a little bit longer just a little bit longer and and because it's acceptable and normal for people to be overseas um, I think perhaps left behind parents uh, find themselves in tricky situations because so they're what do they do in that situation if it gets to them like a year and they were like suddenly they're like I think that they're never going to return them I've now the pennies dropped this is a little, little bit longer a little bit longer and suddenly no they're not going to return them mm. if they then were to apply to the central authority would they have problems or not because they would say they owned they get, there was only a three-month gap from when it you know what I mean yeah it's the date a, of wrongful retention so that yeah okay but I think in those situations the date of wrongful retention can be harder to pinpoint mm. um, and that you know was it acquiescence or they'd say, no, I didn't acquiesce to them relocating there permanently. It was just mm. acquiescing to another month or two from the nine months. Yeah, you know, and in an that period question. of time, even if it wasn't intended to be permanent, although that's a big consideration, you know, has the child's place of habitual residence Shifted anyway, yeah. You know, was it a, quite an open-ended agreement? Was it sort of you can go and you can come back when we sort of feel like it? Or is it you can go and you must be back by the 30th of November of X year? Um, it becomes quite a, a factual consideration depending on each matter, but it's certainly something that is becoming um, more complex and more problematic, I think, over time, pinpointing that date of wrongful retention or removal, not yes. removal so much, but retention um, in circumstances where there's been a long period agreed to and then it's sort of carrying on a little bit. I'm so glad you raised that. I actually had that on my list of things to raise because I saw a matter which I ended up, I think, who knows where we referred it to. This is years ago, I can't remember. Maybe we referred it to you, I hope we did, um, where that exact situation had occurred and it was just this kind of, you know, the parents were Australian but they were also French and then the child was doing school in France and then it was, I'll just stay a bit longer and then it kind of snuck out and snuck out and then suddenly it was like a year had gone by. And it is difficult to know what those arrangements are. I mean, is it... Do you think it would make a difference or would it not make a difference if people had things in writing or some kind of paper trail of like this is – is it better to be clear and say you can only go for this amount of time or is it not – Is it not? does it not make a difference anyway? Or? It's better to be clear, yeah. absolutely. And ideally – I mean, I'm a lawyer, I suppose, but ideally you would have something in writing as well. Mm. And I think that's sometimes a problem that left-behind parents face because – 
particularly in circumstances of wrongful retention where the children have left with permission on a planned holiday or a yeah. planned, you know, We'll just trip. go for one semester to do school and hang out with grandparents Yeah, overseas. and you're still in a relationship and you consider yourself married, you don't necessarily see the need for a written agreement. With someone you're married with to. With an end date because <laughs> you're married to them, you trust them, you, you, you know, don't foresee any difficulties. But um, difficulties arise unexpectedly, um, and it's so. It, I would say it is it is better, better if you to be can clear. to be clear on what the return date is, and that if you're happy to extend it for longer, that again that's something that you you would be clear about how much longer exactly specify not just oh yeah until we agree kind exactly. of thing. And what what kind of agreement do you mean? Do you mean like like just an email, or do you mean like an actual written like what what's the agreement, or do you mean orders or what, what kind of like level of written agreement do you think would be useful because oh. if people are still together it's it's difficult you know for them yeah to... and in that case what we're usually doing and usually it's sufficient depending on the actual content it might just be text messages between the parents discussing mm. it um you know something as simple as a text message to the other parent or an email mm. saying you know, this is why I'm great. so glad that you guys are going to enjoy your trip to the UK and you'll be back after semester one, you know, by so they can start semester two in Australia. Mm. Um, you know, that would be sufficient, depend, mm. depending on the facts. Yeah, all the other facts, of course. Yeah. But you're saying it I doesn't guess... have to be court orders, it doesn't have to be some formal document witnessed by a justice of the peace. I mean, if you have one, great, but. Um, you know, it's it's just a matter of something in writing, so it's not just he said, she said. This is my oral, my memory of our oral conversation. Exactly, because that could be very. I mean, that's very easy to. Yeah. <laughs> a memory of a conversation is what is that really? Like mm. they both probably have different memories of that. Exactly. Um, no, I think that's interesting because I'm really interested in obviously what you, you the work you do. You know, when things go wrong, but also I guess educating people who are listening about things they can do to prevent things getting into that situation yeah. in the future, like. You know, and I was really interested in those discussions we've had today. Mm. Um, look, I think that's about it. Unless there's anything else that you want to raise at all? No, I think that I think the most important thing from our point of view is that um, we would want people to know that our service is available. Sure. It's available to members of the public. It's available to professionals if they need our help. Mm -hmm. um, that we are funded by the government, so we can do this work for people affected by IPCA and we can do it at no cost to them. Yeah, it's um, fantastic. We're a not-for-profit organisation, obviously, we, we like donations. <laughs> but, um, but And it's important work, like anyone who is listening, I mean, if you want to donate to something worthy, I think it is important work. Yeah, um, but I think the message is that if it is something you're affected by or something you're worried is going to happen or something you're considering doing, mm. um, you know, we're a good place for you to get some advice about the various consequences mm. of your, the course of action you decide on. Or if you're a lawyer and someone's wandered into your office and you're thinking, holy heck, how do I, I'm not, you know, this is not what I do every day, um, they could refer them. Absolutely, to refer the client to us or contact us and we can have a discussion about it. Look, thank you very much for, for that. Thank you. This is um, Zoe Durand and um, this is the um, Inside Family Law podcast. I've been very lucky to be having a really interesting discussion um, that wandered into places I didn't realise it would with um, Rebecca Chapman from International Social Services Australia. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. Very welcome. Thanks for listening. Bye.